If you're one of the people that love this show, make sure you go over to holyfullproductions.com and check out our home. You can read articles. You can see my personal journals straight out of the typewriter. You can see the weekly link roundup of all the interesting things I run across. You can see drawings. You can see books recommended for the book club. Or if you're like me and you like things simple, you can just have it sent right to your inbox by signing up for the newsletter, which goes out almost every day. And of course, you can help support this show through either monthly subscriptions or generous one-time donations. All at hoyfulproductions.com. Do we want do we want people to know that this is I think they should. Take two. <laughs> Yeah, so basically last week, Mike and I spent two hours recording an episode that, well, I shouldn't use the word record, because it, <laughs> it did not record. <laughs> it is the most horrible thing that can happen when you do things like oh. this, get to the end and realize that you've had a one. We had a fantastic conversation. Oh, it was so good. It was so good. And it was funny, too, because then I told somebody later that day, I was like, I just had like, I had the best conversation for a podcast. And like, oh, that's cool. I was like, well, it would have been. <laughs> I'm like, but shit happens, you know. Um, did did anything record from that one? No, not even a second. Oh. Well, and so for those of you listening, we are going to meticulously piece together the episode exactly as we did it before. <laughs> all not. those all those notes we took in the middle of talking uh, for all we know it's going to be even more enriching which is actually i shouldn't say for all we know we are going to be more enriched by it i'm by already the, enriched are you are you enriched deep down to your soul deep down all the way i'm feeling feistier today so this is going to be a different conversation <laughs> yeah yeah i was very i felt very reflective on uh on uh thursday was it thursday we did it yeah, yeah i think it was thursday yeah um I felt very reflective that day. And so I think this is, this, this, this could make for a very interesting, this could make for a very interesting conversation because we're so practiced. I mean, you and I, you and I have had hundreds of conversations. Um, a lot of them, I would say the first 50 of them were probably in, in front of a coffee shop in Campbell, California. Yeah. 50 is at least. At least. <laughs> at least. Yeah. Uh, Mike and I have known each other. God, how many years has it been? Like 20 years? Well, when did you start hanging out at the Prune Yard in Campbell? At the, at the Campbell Coffee Roasters? Because mm. you started out at Orchard Valley Coffee, right? No. No, oh, you were never... The, yeah, my, my cousin brought me to... My cousin, Philip, that you know that you went to high school with. Yeah. Um, took me to that coffee shop a few times when I was in high school, but I don't think I started hanging out there until 1999. Okay. So then I was, I had been there for about four years, uh, loitering. Um, I mean, I, I, you know what I spent, I, I spent 19 February of 95 to probably about the summer of 2000, maybe the winter of 2000. Um, I spent all that, those five years there. And I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I think like I was so poor. I probably spent a total of my own money. I would say a hundred bucks. 
at that coffee shop. <laughs> like I, I feel horrible thinking about it now. Um, but but people have told me that I actually like I kind of dodged a bullet because the coffee wasn't all that great. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I think that I didn't I'm about the same. I, I think I was there. I mean, obviously not as long as you, but loitering is the right word. <laughs> How many of us were there? There's at least thirty. Oh yeah, I mean, so ninety five. It was it, my group. It was me, my buddy Randy, uh, Nate Vogel, uh, and Dan Vega, and then this older guy Wes, who would who he always had pot. He always had weed, and he was like, <laughs> we were we were nineteen. We were all about 19, 18, 19 years old, and he was 38. And it's weird to think that I'm now older than he was then um, because he seemed old. (laughs) 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 Which is why I don't mind saying whenever I like sort of like knock myself in some way, I usually refer to myself as as an old white man or an aging white man because that's exactly what I am. (laughs) <laughs> you know like it doesn't bother me you know i mean it bothers me that you know other aging white men that predate me and live concurrently <laughs> in the same time period uh have made being a- an aging white man a shitty thing to be sometimes you know however uh i'm trying my damnedest which is a word you don't hear very often but i'm trying my damnedest to uh not change the perspective, but definitely uh, change the sort of outlook of aging white men. <laughs> you know, like, do we need to be, do we all need to be assholes grabbing land and money and genitalia? You know, when I think about that, that time period, it's almost like what, what we created at that coffee shop was uh, the prototype of social media, the, mm-hmm. the pre chat room. I mean, it, that's essentially what it was random demographics. Mm-hmm. in random conversations on a daily basis about maybe nothing important at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and, and commentary, tons of commentary. Uh, and it was, I mean, it was very much like live YouTube along with comments, <laughs> you know? Uh, but um, yeah, there was, I mean, at peak of hanging out at that coffee shop, there was, there was, I would say there was, upwards of 80 people that you could sort of count on to show up at any given moment. Right. Uh, maybe even a hundred, because I know that when I first did stand-up comedy in downtown San Jose, we left Campbell. So those listening should know that Campbell is a small town that is bordered on the city of San Jose. And the Prune Yard is a shopping center that used to have a number of bookstores. Doesn't even have that anymore. <laughs> nope. It's <laughs> so weird. But then again, you know, people read stuff online and what have you. I'm not going to lie. I read all the time and it's very rarely on paper. So, but yeah, um, there was a lot of us. There were, there were a ton of us. And so the first time I did stand up, we convinced everyone at the coffee shop to come and see me do stand up for the first time at Cafe Babylon in downtown San Jose. And that was been September 98. And uh, so, yeah, almost 20, 20 years ago and a, and a little over a month. It'll be 20 years ago. There was so many people. And I think that's what it was, that there was no social networking. You know, like you wanted to network and be social. Uh, you had to show up. 
you absolutely had to show up. And then, you know, after 11 p.m. at night, there was, there was my, like chat rooms. I remember talking to random strangers in <laughs> chat rooms. <laughs> How creepy was that? That's kind of creepy. Yeah. Thinking back on that, that is pretty creepy. That's so weird. I mean, like, but it's also at the same time, it's, I mean, it's the equivalent of, and the safer version of meeting someone at a bar. Right. You know? So I guess I guess it does make a little bit of sense to to meet up with people on the internet, people you don't know. And I mean over time it's essentially what it's what comments can be on on Reddit or 4chan or Instagram even, you know. You 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 leave a comment and you like that comment, you somebody else likes that comment that you left and then you know, over time, you maybe you become friends. Maybe you you do eventually meet in person. You know, the slow version of OK Cupid. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what transitioned you from comedy into poetry? Um, so after that first, it was the first or second time I went to that open mic. It was called Baca Talk. Uh, Jeff Trenchard, our mutual friend, Jeff Trenchard dragged me down took him several weeks to finally get me to get in his car and go with him to downtown san jose and do stand-up and that same night i did stand-up he did spoken word spoken word poetry and performance poetry if you will and his was very performative i mean he was all he was all teeth gums and arms you know (laughs) uh minus all the ink that he now has and he was, I mean, if I looked back at it now, if I saw a video of him performing at 17, 18 years old at that time, I, I would be like, eh, it's all right, you know? But then at that time, it was exactly what I needed to see somebody do. And it opened me up. Jeff Trenchard opened me up to a whole new realm of talking, a whole new realm of, of spoken art. I thought I was supposed to be a stand-up comedian and an actor and a priest before that, and a ventriloquist and, and a, <laughs> all, a, an MC. You know, I was all I was going to be all of these things all at once. You know, and I was going to have girlfriends somehow. You know, none of those things happened, especially the girlfriends. No, that's not true. <laughs> but very few. I, I never. None of those things materialized, especially once I saw spoken word, and I thought, oh. Here it is. Yes. I don't need to be a stand-up comedian. I need to be a funny guy who doesn't always have to be funny. I need to be a humorist who can also be a seriousist. You know? Mark Twain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's he's my favorite author. And it makes perfect sense why he's my favorite author. At least he's my favorite author from the 19th century. That's for sure. The dude was just fascinating. Flawed, for sure, but, but fascinating. Much better, a much better human being than Jack London. Right. Fuck that guy. <laughs> and I share a birthday with Jack London. I'm exactly 100 years old, or 100 years younger than him. I'm 100 years old. No, he was uh, January 12th, 1876, and I'm January 12th, 1976. But yeah, so I, I, I immediately wrote, started writing poems that I thought were kind of funny, but also exposed me in a way that most comedians don't. And then I I started studying all the comics again that I had watched before. And I realized that all of my favorites were 
or very funny poets or very poetic humorists. George Carlin, Richard Pryor, uh, even Eddie Murphy to some degree. And then, of course, the one and only Bill Hicks. Oh, mm. Bill Hicks, like the, to me, is the epitome of a, of a stand-up poet, uh, a very funny poet, a very poetic, funny man. It just mind-boggling. And that art form of when you look at, you know, I just named three of the best stand-up comedians who've ever taken the stage. And that's not to say that all of the best stand-up comedians should also be poetic, but it helps a lot. And I think that's because that deep down, we don't want to separate the two. Uh, we need the humor and we need the poetry all in one. And so I maintained both and I really tried to keep both together. And I always do. Whenever I'm on stage, I like to, I like the freedom of knowing that I don't have to make the whole room laugh right then and there. And if I want to spend 10 minutes commenting on or just considering something that is very bittersweet or vulnerable or tempting, then I want to be able to do that. I want to have the freedom to be able to say those things. And stand-up comedy locks you into a, uh, a realm that I think is, 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 can be really unhealthy because you're thinking in a way that isn't, it's, it's not, uh, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like a rhyming, you know, like you're not saying what you want to say. You're saying what you have to say in order for the words to fit. Mm. And I feel like that's what stand-up comedy is to a large degree. It's like, you're not saying what you want to say. You're saying what you have to say. And what if what you want to say is also what the room wants to hear, you know, except that the thing is that if you are a stand-up comedian who makes an entire room cry at a comedy club, you're never going to get work again. You know, I always recommend to, to, to poets, like try stand-up comedy once or twice, three times. I always think people should try things three times unless it hurts and you don't like pain or unless it hurts someone else and they don't like pain. Consent is key. But I will say that I think everyone should try stand-up comedy three times. And I would say that everyone should try poetry three times. And everyone should try Ethiopian food three times. Because uh, I couldn't stand it the first two times I tried it, but it, it got better each time. And it turns out that the first time I tried it, which was also in Campbell, California, mm -hmm. that place closed down for like like ninety health violations. So <laughs> I think that said it had more to do with why I didn't like it than the actual food itself. We have one of the largest Ethiopian and Eritrean populations in the United States. Over the weekend, I've been watching. Uh, comedians in car getting coffee. Comedians in cars getting coffee. Have yeah. you watched this yet? Uh, I have a number of episodes. It seems as though it's fantastic. It is. It really is. And it seems as though all the episodes I watched are people who are now banished from doing stand-up comedy. <laughs> Michael Richards, uh, <laughs> yeah. Louis yeah. C.K. Louis C.K. Yeah, <laughs> I noticed that too. Uh, did you ever see comedian, the Jerry Seinfeld documentary? No, that he made in like 2002. It's weird that it's as old as it is now because I remember it being a really refreshing look at stand-up. It was in an, at an era where there was sort of the new school was just coming out. You know, the Patton Oswalt's, the, the Zach Galifianakis's, the uh, uh, Sarah Silverberg. Um, Silverman. Sarah Silverman. Silverberg. Now the documentary would be really interesting to watch because he's sort of like, 
you see him getting back into it. It's a few years after Seinfeld went off the air and he went right back into stand-up comedy because he didn't have time for much of it while he was filming the series. And don't get me wrong, I'm not a huge fan of Jerry Seinfeld. I do think he's a good interviewer. I do think he's in, in like, I enjoy how much he enjoys humor. Mm-hmm. He loves humor. And his passion for humor is refreshing. His sense of humor is hit or miss for me. He's not, a, as far as I'm concerned, he's not a poet, you know. I mean, he might be in his own right. I've never read any of his work, but, but I mean, like what he does on stage to me is not, you know, it's not life changing. It's not, it's just, it's interesting observations. But his, his appreciation for all types of stand-up comedy, like he knows what he can do. And then he lets everybody else do what they do, you know, and he seems to appreciate all or most of it. And, but in, so in the documentary comedian, uh, you see him on the road and he follows another up and coming comic named uh, or, Orly or Orly, Orly Adams, something like that. Hmm. And the guy in the documentary, he just makes, I don't want to say anything terribly negative about the guy, but he makes Jerry Seinfeld look awesome. <laughs> because he doesn't seem that awesome. He's he's so hell-bent on fame. And it's such an interesting contrast because Jerry Seinfeld is probably, at the time, the most famous stand-up comic. At that point, he's, he's probably the most famous person to have done stand-up comedy who's still, still working, aside from Bill Cosby. You find out that he's, he's really good friends with Chris Rock. He, Seinfeld and Chris Rock kind of came up at the same time and uh, they stayed friends. And so he, he runs into Chris Rock all the time. Whenever they, they show up at an open mic, they would like just huddle and, and, and kind of catch up and see how they were doing, you know, and talk about humor, talk about stand-up. And Chris Rock says, well, you know who's really killing it right now still is, is Bill, you know, and he just says Bill. And Seinfeld knows exactly who he's talking about. And they're both just sort of in awe of, of Cosby. And I feel like it would be so interesting to watch this documentary now because he gets the, he finds the Holy Grail and he goes to a show and Cosby agrees to an interview uh, after, after one of his double performances that night. And it's a great conversation. Uh, about stand-up and about work ethic and all that stuff. I recommend it because, especially now, because Cosby is such a pariah right? Uh, for comics, for, for women, for, for anyone. You know? I only recommend it if you like, are really fascinated with stand-up comedy. I don't recommend it if you're not into Bill Cosby. <laughs> you know? An interesting point of something that I've been kind of playing around with in my head recently. I, I, for a while, I was testing out doing a live video on Fridays. Yeah. And in the last one I did before I, I stopped doing it, I quoted Woody Allen. But then I felt I had to preface quoting Woody Allen. Yeah. And I kind of ended up in this conversation with the audience that I want to get your input on. Mm-hmm. When you look back at the history of great artists and great comedians and just you know great creators in general, a lot of them are complete dirtbags. Yeah. Where do you think that, or how do you think we begin to digest as a society that 
Sometimes awful people make great art. I mean, that's that's sort of the eternal question for, I think, people in like the midpoint of their careers. You know, I think about like my some of my most favorite actors are probably, you know, insensitive, discompassionate, unrelenting assholes, you know? I guess what it is, is, is like you have control over becoming famous unless somebody else makes you famous. Right. Somebody takes a video of you fall, slipping on some, on some ice outside, you know, holding a coffee in your hand and it spills everywhere. And the video goes viral. That's not your... The action is your fault, but the, the fame is not. You know, the, viral, the viralness of your action is not your fault. But if you're Frank Sinatra or Bill Cosby, that's, your fame is your fault. Your fame is all yours. You asked for that. You sought it out. You wanted it because you, you had a taste of it and you could have said, no, I don't want this anymore. Or you did what you actually ended up doing, which was pursue it. You pursued fame. What does that say? Like when you think about, put it in a, a, a small perspective, you know, a little kid really wants to be popular at school. I wanted to be popular in high school. And so I did everything I could to become popular in high school. You had to become popular because other people make you popular. Uh, or you make yourself popular. Well, n- no one at five foot four and 230 pounds is just going to suddenly become popular because he's five foot four and 230 pounds. You know, he's, he's got to work at it. <laughs> he's got to like make an effort. And I did. And I became one of, you know, a few class clowns at my high school. But this was after years and years and years of being teased for having spina bifida. Well, not for having spina bifida, but the side effect of having spina bifida, which is no bladder control, wearing diapers. And all my life, I have dealt with that my whole life, every day, uh, three times already today. And it is just, just part and parcel of my daily existence, as it was in high school, except in high school it was... Are, is this person an ally or is this person uh, uh, going to be a jackass today? The jackasses sort of like faded away by the time I hit my senior year in high school. I became very, very popular and very well liked for some really stupid shit too. Just like a lot of yelling curse words and uh, being very silly and doing impersonations. Lots of impersonations. And I think, you know, I think I was pretty funny then but only because I absolutely had to be. I made myself popular. So then I, re, then I sort of, I tried to retract a lot of it. I tried to like, like push some of that away. And I, I sort of regressed back into this sort of loner, like I was in seventh grade, you know? And I just kind of kept to myself and I had my few friends and, uh, and then coffee happened. Campbell Coffee Roast Company happened and, and uh, that became a big social mecca for a lot of us. And uh, I spent, I mean, a minimum of six hours a day, six days a week sitting at that coffee shop. Minimum for at least the first, I would say like the middle three years of my five-year stint, the middle three years I was there regularly, like over-regular. and. I was hungry for that companionship from so many people 
from so many people who were all really trying to figure out who the heck they were. Late teens, early 20s. Who the fuck are we? Holy shit. I'm a person now. I'm an adult now. What the fuck am I supposed to do with this? I know what I'll do. I'll go sit with that five foot six, 260 pound bearded guy who rolls cigarettes all day and has no money. Where'd you get the cigarettes, McGee? Good friends. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I had habits that other people paid for because I was funny, I guess, you know, I was a lazy, I was lazy in terms of work ethic, but I was very busy in terms of social ethic. That really, that was a huge layup for me when I finally started really getting into poetry, doing really well in poetry slam competitions around the country, and then touring for 10 years straight, touring hard for 10 years straight, really hard, Um, spending tens of months away from San Jose at a time, several months here, a few months there, coming home for a week at a time, crash on my mom's couch, rent a room for a couple of months. I had a storage unit for eight years, a five by five closet that I would go and like hang out in for a day, <laughs> just look at stuff. Like, oh, childhood, how cool. I remember that. I was a homebody till I was 27, you know, and a homebody meaning like wherever there was my people, wherever my people were, I was there. Home has always been, always been people, always. So how do you think that plays into the idea of bad people making art? So I think that if you seek out a, a fame for the sake of fame, for the sake of being beloved, and you're willing to hide the worst parts of yourself to get that love, to get that... It's not even love. It's more of an obs- obsession, you know? Like how, like think of someone that you really, whose work you really admire, but you know, you know that they're probably not a good person. I'll use Cosby. He was my, he was my idol. Bill Cosby was my idol. I, everything I wanted to do was because he, he showed that it could be done, you know, a huge successful sitcom. I totally wanted, wanted a huge successful sitcom. Stand up being a, a very funny, very poetic human being. Uh, I mean, he was, he was mine and America's dad. And anyone who had saw it in syndication, he was your dad. And it turns out that like, there are people who hate him for the things he did. Call him guilty, call him not guilty. There are people who hate him for things he did in his real life, in his actual William H. Cosby life. And to seek that kind of fame and that kind of belovedness, that kind of obsession, like I obsessed over a guy I didn't know. I obsessed over Bill Cosby because he was the ultimate. He was, that was, I put him on a pedestal so I could always see him. And the person I was putting on a pedestal was the character he played on on the show. The guy who showed up on stage and sat down and did stand-up comedy by sitting down. The guy who told just the funniest stories, you know? 
And you don't have to be a good person to do good work. As a matter of fact, it probably behooves you to be a, a, maybe a slightly wretched human being to do even better work. You know, it's, it's, it, it, can, it can really help you because then you don't have to worry about, you don't have to think about other people. You don't absolutely have to be compassionate toward everyone you come in, come in contact with. You can be very selective, very choosy as to who you want to be good to, you know, and everybody else is like, just don't even think about them. Especially don't think about them when you're about to hurt them. Don't consider their feelings. You know, if you're a person who spends time considering other people's feelings, you're probably a good person. You probably have some goodness in you. You might not always have time to make great art (laughs) because you're a good person. This is just a theory that I've been working on for a little while now. It's interesting that you bring that up, though, because in the episode of Comedians in Cars, when Jerry's sitting down with John Oliver, Mm -hmm. did you see that episode? I did not. I appreciate John Oliver's work. I believe that they were pretty much strangers when they did this episode. But they're sitting there talking, and I can't remember what John Oliver says, but he says the words, the internal logic of comedy. Mm-hmm. And Jerry, being a good interviewer, immediately says, well, what is the internal logic of comedy? And John Oliver, without even thinking, says that you'll do anything for a laugh, like a sociopath. Yeah. And I, I think that I mean, couldn't have been more appropriate to what you just said. And look at the kind of work he does, too. He's, he's trying to expose shittiness. You know, and like, they don't get it right every single time, but that show is... His show is, is really good, especially if you're uh, a liberal right now. <laughs> then then you, you really appreciate what he has to say. Well, what I find powerful about that, too, is the comedy is so well executed yeah. that even someone like I know someone who is not liberal, who's actually the opposite, that finds that show humorous. Yeah. Yeah. And that's powerful. It is. It is. It, humor, is uh, humor is the sugar that helps the medicine go down if you do it right. You know, that's why I I think that's why I'm not as much of a fan of Jerry Seinfeld because he's not offering his, his medicine is it's Robitussin. It's not healing anything. It's just coating, (laughs) you know, just coating the throat. It's just coating the, the, the feeling of pain. What was that feeling for you? I want to go back to Bill Cosby for a second. Yeah. He's your, he was your hero. Um, what was that like for you to go through that, to, to find out that that's what he was like? Oh, Cosby? Yeah, you based your whole life in some way, aside from the poetry, a good portion of your identity, it sounds like you pulled from Cosby, and then to find out that... The model, you, yeah. The model of what I thought success was as a comedian, as a funny, as a good, funny person. Because he built an, an identity that was good, you know? Like he intentionally made himself the end-all be-all of good person, you know? Right. He was the face and voice of Jell-O. I mean, Jell-O, <laughs> you know? Like, right. Kodak film, you know, your memories. He was really smart, really smart about his, about the, the identity he constructed. So finding out that he was a shitty dude was... You know, it's weird because I, I feel like I heard something about it in the 90s. But because like you have, you have one or two people's word 
against this behemoth. It's so easy for a fan, for an obsessive fan, to some degree, to say, oh, come on. You're talking about the Bill Cosby. You're talking about Papa Cosby. That is not possible. It's just not possible because he says it isn't. He says it's not possible. And because he's such a good person, because he's told me he's a good person, because he's told all of us he's a good person, because he has built up this identity that I have accepted. Now I can't break that, you know? So yeah, so in the 90s, I disregarded any negative thing I ever heard about him and anyone else for that matter. I don't remember there being anyone in the 90s who's, who, aside from Pee Wee Herman, which was just like, when you look back on the whole Pee Wee Herman thing, he got caught in a porn theater masturbating. He got caught in a porn theater masturbating. How dare he do what millions of people have done for millions of years? Uh, you know, which is jacking off in a in a porn theater. Um, so, you know, and that ruined his that ruined his career for a very long time. He had to do PSAs after that. He ended up doing uh, Say No to Crack. Like, what does that have to do with... Like, he, like he, if he's going to do a PSA, it should be like, you know, hey, kids, be sure you masturbate at home. <laughs> you know? Like, don't go in a theater where they're showing you porno. <laughs> it's like, oh, my gosh. You know, and that ruined his career. And then you, but you got guys like Bill Cosby who's actually hurting other people. So I was... I was bummed out initially when it seemed as though this might be true. Then I was angry. I was very angry that I was... Initially, I was angry that I was duped, uh, that we were all duped. And then I was... uh, And then I just felt shame that we were duped. Because in a way, it's like, you know... In a social way, it's it's a it's sort of drugging society, you know. How did that feel for your identity? Since your identity was so tied to him, I mean, did, no, did you have I, like not, an identity? No, I, I, I would I would say that my identity wasn't as as tied to him as it was when I was a kid, when I was younger, up through my teens. But I was also very Catholic at the same time. I was very like. I was pretty determined to be a priest, even though I didn't really believe in God. I thought, well, maybe that'll help me find God. And I never did. Uh, He just never answered my calls. So I finally just, I was tired of leaving voicemails. I was like, you know what? He clearly doesn't have any interest in hanging out. So no. And and so I was, you know, I was just trying to be a good kid. And I thought Bill Cosby was a great role model for that. And as I got older, his comedy seemed weaker and weaker as he got older. Uh, and so I wasn't, I was nowhere near the fan I had been by the time I found all this out. So I imagine if I were younger, it would have been even harder for me to accept this notion, but all this shit really, everything really hit the fan when I was already in my late thirties, you know? So it wasn't like, I wasn't, I think my childhood was sort of like highly, highly muddied, (laughs) you know, from this, but, but not in a way that was. Uh, you know, like, I just feel bad for the women that he hurt. Like, I want to like, like, 
like fuck Bill Cosby. I like he he's an old man who has lived eighty something years as a free person who hurt a lot of people. Um, he made millions of people laugh, and I think that that's where people have a hard time with. It's like, well, at least he did good art. It's like, yeah, but he did that good art on the on the backs and on the pain of others. You know, he 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 made that good art and hurt other people in the process of making that good art. You know, like you got someone like J.D. Salinger, who you know anyone who ever met him says that he wasn't a great guy. I don't know, and I don't know enough about it. Maybe he's a bad example, but I don't know if he was an abusive person or whatever. But I don't really know anything about him. He just kind of kept to himself. And uh, Ginsburg, I would, I could talk for thirty minutes on Ginsburg, Allen Ginsburg as a poet. You know, like especially me being a poet, a, a poet that represents the Bay Area, that represents the San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley, Santa Clara County, whatever, what have you, San Jose people always make connections with beat poets and the modern Bay area spoken word scene because we're sort of, we're sort of related to them by, by proxy, you know, and to be represented by Ginsburg, Kerouac, Cassidy, who lived, you know, down the street from me at one point in the fifties, uh, who am I missing? Um, Burroughs, uh, Burroughs. <laughs> you know, like, these are not good guys. <laughs> these are not like, these are not great people by any means, by any stretch of the word, you know, and murderers, addicts, and thieves, you know, which is like also the standard roster of poets at a poetry slam. <laughs> you know? And I, I don't mind associating with people like that. I am probably one of those things, I'm sure. Uh, definitely an addict for sure. Guess what? Most of the world has done bad shit. Most of the world is like, has, has had moments of irredeemability. That's the only word I can think of where you know, in that moment, no one would forgive you. You know, everyone has a moment where you just, the person you want to forgive you would not be able to, you know, it's, it's just, I think it's, it's unfortunate when people just keep doing that, keep adding on irredeemable moments to their life. So it's, it's, it's hard because Midnight in Paris, that's a really neat movie. I, I, I finally watched a, a, a Woody Allen film that I could, that I could like, sit through, that I could finish. I was never a fan of his. I always thought his work was just some of the most pompous, clearly vehicles for his mind, his id, and his face. You know, he, he made himself the star of all these films, um, which is whatever. I'm just, I've just never been a fan of Woody Allen's. So to find out that he's, he's... I mean, I remember being 12 and hearing that he was now dating his, his wife's adopted daughter. And I, I find it very interesting that he he didn't adopt her with her. It was almost as if he intentionally didn't adopt her because he was maybe attracted to her initially. <laughs> Just like, ah, oh, she's too hot. I can't adopt her because I might want to marry her down the road. He just seems like a gross dude. And now he's an old white gross dude. 
I mean, he's always been white, but now he's really old. <laughs> There's just something about being, if you're a gross dude and you're always given, you always take the opportunity to maintain a grossness about you, uh, an irredeemability, then you're a bad guy. You know, you should be handed a, a, a Sith mask of some sort and you should be cast off to an island that, you know, is just surrounded by sharks because we don't need you. You know, but there are a lot of people in the world who are like, I need the next Woody Allen film. I need the next drawn out story about an old dude dating someone 60 years his younger, you know? Ugh. Obviously, people like Bill Cosby should be punished for things that they do. But do you think for the rest, you know, the people who are just despicable in some degree or flawed in some degree, you know, we'll take, for example, somebody like Michael Richards who I know nothing about except that he was on Seinfeld. He was in UHF and then he got on stage and said the N word and destroyed every bit of credibility. Do you think that people like that who haven't committed a crime, at least as as far as law goes, Mm -hmm. do you think our standards for those people are too high? Do you think we expect these people that are in the spotlight to be better people than even the average person is capable of being. Yeah, yeah, because we, because mo- I think most people, not everybody, but most people treat the spotlight, especially at the time when Michael Richards ruined his career and hurt people in public. Say what you will about physically harming somebody, but but verbally harming someone is it lasts. You know, I had a friend who always said it takes nine compliments to erase uh, to erase an insult. You know, and I think when you get to that level of what Michael Richards did, it's going to take 90,000 compliments to erase those insults. You know, you can't quantify it, obviously, but I think that I think that when you're given a spotlight because because you've done good, fun, entertaining things, you should just know that that spotlight can be taken away from you if you do the wrong thing. You know, and it's like, yeah, he didn't commit a crime. Uh, he didn't commit a, um, a a penal crime. You know, something that is, has been legislated as as a as an act against the law. You know, to 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 some degree. I mean, in some places, it it it, it is, and calling people r- racial epithets is a crime uh, in some countries. I don't know how I would. I don't know, as, as somebody who really believes in freedom of speech, I think that, that people should be allowed to say what they want, but they should also be held responsible for... Freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom from consequence, you know? Right. Um, if you say something horrific to someone and someone punches you in the mouth, you're either going to think twice about saying something horrific again, or you're going to keep doing it, you're going to keep testing people, you know? Um, but words hurt, Words do hurt. And if you intentionally hurt someone, you should be ready for consequence. Why wouldn't you? Why would you be shocked if someone responds in kind? You know? Um, so I think, you know, I think if, if when you watch the video of Michael Richards just, just going off with the N word, it's pretty raw. Like still, years later, it still feels really raw. It's like, whoa, dude. And, it, and, and it, w- it was with that intensity, it makes you wonder like, 
what does he usually think? What is he usually not saying out loud? You know, what is he withholding when he's being his real self? You know, and it makes you wonder, like, if I did that, if I did that when we were sitting at the at Campbell Coffee Roasting Company in 1999, 2000, if I did that, if I did what Michael Richards did, what would you think of me today? Hmm. You know, what would you think of me now? You know, if I, you know, and that wasn't that far apart either. I think that happened in what, 2002, 2003, four, something like that. Like mm-hmm. I, it was, I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was long enough ago to where the video footage from a cell phone is really bad, <laughs> 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 which is really not that long ago, I guess. I think it was like maybe 05, 04, 05. Yeah, he didn't commit a crime, so he wasn't he wasn't arrested, you know. But he was he was socially reprimanded. And I think I think maybe deservedly so. You know, if he went into if he went into if he was accepted by black communities um as a, as someone who's there to help, to volunteer, to to sort of make penance, you know, social penance. Like this is the Catholic in me. Like you, you, you make up for the the sins you committed, you know. And saying prayers isn't going to do it because, as most Catholics probably know, prayers don't mean shit. If that were the case, then everybody would be rich and all our enemies would be dead. You're not the type of person who would go off and say something like that. But as someone who's spent a considerable amount of time in the spotlight yourself, do you ever feel that pressure that you're going to say something or write something? that someone is going to take a different way and and all of a sudden the villagers will be chasing after you with the pitchforks. Are you ever afraid that you're going to cross a line without knowing you're going to cross a line? Yeah, I think, and I think I have crossed lines. I have, um, I definitely have some, I have poetry that is very, I would say is probably, I've had, I've had gay friends say, I'm not so sure about that poem because of, of lines that I, I, I say in it. Now, I mean, like, I've always avoided, I've always avoided the epithets, the, the bad names that, that people use against marginalized people. I've always avoided those because I think they're horrible. But I've also been completely inept and totally... Uh, and I've been irresponsible in how I use some phrasing, you know? And... You know, looking back, I'm like, like some I've I have lines in some poems that are very that I question that I think are like I, I probably shouldn't have written this when I wrote it, but I was maybe trying to get a laugh or or what have you. And so uh, I definitely have a hard time looking at some of my work, some of my old work. I I, I tend to avoid certain things. I mean, I'm not, I'm. I'm I'm not necessarily embarrassed by it, but it's 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 informed how I approach new work because it because I feel bad. It's not that I don't want anyone to think poorly of me. It's that I know people might I know people would feel poorly of me uh, if I continued in that in that pattern. And and now I'm now I'm informed. Now I'm more aware. You know, and as the future almost always is. You know, with like, we change our language all the time, and language goes out of fashion, and language becomes insulting over time, or 
the people doing the insulting wake up to the fact that it's an insult. And that's also very key is that, you know, it's, it's, there aren't very many people in the world that don't know that the N word always hurts people. If you don't know that you're an idiot. So there is a language rule that you just, if you're white, you don't say it. You just don't, you know, because everyone will always question, why did you say it? Uh, if you know you shouldn't say it, that you could just avoid it, uh, why would you say it? Why should you say it? Um, and there's really never any reason to do so. I'm fine with that rule. If it means that I'm not going to hurt anybody by not saying it, then I don't want to hurt anyone, you know? And I don't want, you know, like, I think if you do, it says something about your character. It says something about maybe a little bit about who you are and what you might really be thinking. Our words are, our eyes might be the window to our soul, but our words are the door to our heart. You know, there's a direct pneumatic tube, quite, quite actually. Words, yeah, words are my life. And so I want to, I want to be smart about it. Our generation or maybe not even our generation, but this period in history is one of the, in my opinion, as far as things like this go, is one of the largest periods of awakening in the sense that now that we have access to more and more people's um, perspectives because of the internet, we've found out that uh, little people don't like to be called the M word. Mm -hmm. And everybody, everybody used that before. We grew up in a generation that, that was a common word, that that was mm -hmm. funny. They named a car that. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, words for transsexuals that we don't use anymore. Or um, homophobic jokes. That, you know, like if you go mm -hmm. back and watch Eddie Murphy's stand-up, all of the homophobic jokes he made were completely socially acceptable at the time. Oh, yeah. Socially acceptable to everyone who wasn't that. To the mainstream. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Not that it was correct. It's always that way. It's always that way. And there are phrases that we use now that someday will likely not be socially acceptable. Right. And it's always been that way and it always will be that way. I think that's one of the difficult things about being a creator. When you're an average person and you use those things before you know, you're aware that you're not supposed to, before somebody teaches you that they hurt, mm -hmm. when you're still ignorant, we'll say. Mm -hmm. When you use them in everyday life, it's done. You know, like you learn, okay, I don't use that anymore. But when you're an artist, it's recorded. Mm -hmm. It's on VHS. It's, it's in a book. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a very difficult thing. I thought about that when you were saying that about your old poems. Yeah, well, it's, you know what it is? It's like, it's, it's you know, some, there are people, certainly there are people who, who say things like, I feel as though I said these things not quite understanding. But, and I'll say this too. I remember... Uh, I remember uh, up until probably 2002, I remember the phrase, that's so gay, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember I always, I, I would never say the, I would never say the F word towards homosexuals, towards, right. towards gay people, ever, 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 ever. Why would I ever say that? But I was constantly saying, and whenever I say, hey, you want to hang out this weekend? Oh, I can. I have this thing I have to go to. It's like, oh, that's so gay. And I said it all the time. Oh, all the time. And my housemate at the time, Oz, uh, one day I said it. And, you know, he's, as far as I know, a heterosexual uh, white male. 
uh, in 2002, he, he just looks at me and goes, man, you need to stop saying that, dude. I was like, what? And I just, I was so taken aback by his reaction to it because he was never, ever, ever that reactive toward anything. Uh, very rarely. And I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, you keep saying that. You keep saying that things are gay. I, that just sounds so negative. And I, I had not considered, you know, it, like it hadn't occurred to me why I was saying it, where it even came from. It had to have come from like middle school, you know, and it was just something I'd always said. And I never considered why I said it. And that really opened up this new valve of compassion. Like him just giving it to me, you know, and being like, being angry about it, you know? And, um, and it showed me that like, well, if he could be offended by it, gosh, how, how am I making people I, you know, other people I care about, how am I making them feel? How am I going to, how's the world going to feel if there's video of me down the road saying that? And I mean, like, I can't, you know, I don't want to go back and scrub my past. I don't want to go back and, and fix the art that was, uh, questionable. You know, I want people to know that 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 is a person that existed. Uh, That was me. I don't do that anymore. Uh, I don't want to do that anymore. And I want to inform others. I want to be the guy that gets angry at friends for saying things that I find offensive or hurtful. You know, I want to be that guy. I want to be just like Oz and question my friends, you know, question white people when they, they commit racist acts, question people with their microaggressions. Uh, question people who just make me feel bad, you know, um, make me feel bad knowing that they're being, they're not being compassionate towards other folks, any folks. And that's the thing is that I, I, I try everything I do. I try to, I try to put some sort of compassion toward it. Don't get me wrong. I hate people all the time. I can't stand people. I saw a tweet recently and I wish I could credit the right person for it, but uh, you know, group names like uh, a parliament of owls, a pride of lions, um, a murder of crows. Uh, somebody tweeted the phrase, um, a group of people is called an annoying. <laughs> 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 and I, I, I really want to give credit to the person who, who wrote this, not mine by any means, but I can't remember who tweeted it. Uh, but I just thought that, that was perfect. That is so true and so perfect. Uh, I am annoyed by humankind all the time. But I also am very much in love with humankind. And in every relationship I've ever had with someone, every lover, every girlfriend, every partner, I've been is so madly in love with them and so incredibly annoyed by them all at the same time, you know? And so that's that's humanity. Like you you again, we've all had irredeemable moments. Uh, and we've all uh, and, and, and I and I I'd like to believe that we can all learn from them, um, but then again, you know, like we got some. There's some folks in charge <laughs> right now who don't seem very redeemable. Don't seem like they learn from their everyday mistakes. So maybe you know, maybe Donald Trump has a doodle on a napkin that he drew while on the phone with you know, one of his mistresses. And maybe that doodle, if I saw it, I would want to frame it. I would want to love it. I would want to see it every day because that doodle was gorgeous. You know, I think it is possible for horrifically shitty people 
to do things that inspire me. I think it is possible. And it's, I know it is because Bill Cosby did it for 30 something years of my life. And he, he could still, he could still do something that inspires me, but he, he's also done things that, uh, that I completely and totally reject. He's done things that have, have made, made me feel very distraught. You know, I don't think that it's possible to separate the, I do, I, do, I do think it is possible to separate the art from the person, but there's still, no matter what, it's always that person that created the pain and created the joy. It's the same person, but inspired by different things. There's so much to be said about it. More than we could ever even begin to cover. It's oh. a very, such a complex issue. So complex. Well, here's a question that you will remember from Thursday. <laughs> we'll see if your answer has changed um, in this quest to become a better human being what book do you think that I should read next you should read The Wind in My Hair My Fight for Freedom in Modern Iran published this year uh, and the author's name is Masi which means Messiah in uh, Farsi uh, Alinejad she is our age Oh, uh, she's my age. She's born in 76. She's uh, an Iranian journalist, broadcaster, blogger, and founder of the My Stealthy Freedom Movement. Uh, she's a 2012 graduate of Oxford Brooks University. Uh, and she reports, presents a weekly TV segment on VOA called Tablet, where she mixes hard news and satire. She now lives in Brooklyn and is not allowed back in Iran because her campaign is to get women to take off their hijabs in public, take off their head coverings in public in Iran, uh, and causes a lot of grief. And there have been, there have been uh, women who've gone to prison for it for, for long periods of time um, for taking off their hijab in public. And the person who gave me the book to read also went to Iran to do the same thing. Uh, and uh, told me about it. And it's really, really powerful, really in- intense. But you get a history of her, of her life in Iran and perspective that we can't possibly know as white, aging white American males. Like we cannot possibly know this perspective without hearing it and reading it from someone else. And I think that the more, the more us white dudes read more books by people of color, the more compassionate we'll be, the more we'll understand, the more we'll have a sense of like how the whole world works. It's powerful. I'm not done with the book yet, but I'm halfway through. And I have to say that it's definitely one of many thousands of books that I think we should be reading. And would you like to tell everyone who's listening? who you are and uh, plug yourself and plug all of your links and whatever you'd like to plug. My name is Mighty Mike McGee. I am from San Jose, California, proudly. I am a poet, a spoken word artist, a stand-up comedian, a humorist. I like to call myself a stand-up poet. Uh, It's a phrase that I thought I made up, and so did my friend Jack McCarthy. Uh, May he rest in peace. He thought he made it up too. 
And then somebody showed him a book called Stand Up Poetry uh, that was published in 1988, which predated both of us thinking we made up the phrase. I hope there are more stand-up poets out there. I hope there are more people out there who want to be stand-up poets. If you are, uh, you can come to any one of my shows here in San Jose. Uh, I produce uh, a number of events that are essentially variety showcases and showdowns. It is the variety show that I think is sort of the spice of life, especially nightlife. I mm, toured my butt off for 10 years from about 2003 till about 2013, 2014. I toured a lot and I saw uh, so much of the US, so much of Canada and a lot of Europe. And I performed poems in all of those places. And it's possible that you've heard one of my poems. And it is very possible you can hear my poems now on Bandcamp. Uh, bandcamp.com, Mighty Mike McGee. You can go, just go to my website, mightymikemcgee.com. Mighty Mike McGee was, was my first email address. Uh, a friend told me I should get an email address in 1997, uh, Jeff Trenchard. And so I did. Uh, I got one and uh, I, got, I had a, a choice of... I love alliteration. So I, got a, I had the choice of uh, Mighty Mike McGee, Modest Mike McGee, Mary Mike McGee, and... Uh, probably something else. And uh, I took a survey and I asked all the friends in the room uh, which one they liked the most. And they all agreed that Mighty Mike McGee had a nice ring to it. It rolled off the tongue nicely. 21 years later, I have to agree. And uh, I use it to differentiate myself from all the other Mike McGees in the world. I am the current Poet Laureate of Santa Clara County. I am proud to hold that title. I have won uh, many... Poetry slams in my day. Uh, I no longer win them. I don't think I could if I tried. Poetry slam is a young person sport, like most sports. And I am no longer a young person. And I think that it should be left to the, the youth, the youths of the world to spread the, the, those, those poetry slams. And so now it is my duty here in San Jose to showcase all the, the good poets, comics, musicians, and what have you in the various shows that, and open mics that I put on here. I also am the uh, events editor and writer for the Metro newspaper here in San Jose. And yeah, I got, my, uh, I got fingers in, in many different pots. And I am so glad not to be a traveling poet anymore. I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll hit the road here and there. I'm going to Europe again in November. I'll be in Germany and Denmark, but it's nice to, to wake up in the same bed every day. It's really nice to wake up in the same bed every day. You know, one of the best ways to support a podcast is to go over to the podcast app that you're using, especially if it is Apple Podcasts, and take five minutes to sit down and rate and review the show. Just give it a star rating, give it a paragraph letting people know what value you get out of the show. Because that's how we communicate to the world what this show is about if they haven't listened to it before. And it's also how we communicate to guests or possible guests what the show that is inviting them on is about and what people think of it. So please take the time to rate and review us.